0: As you keep your place in the Scripture, let me say to you, I'll just say this in the first service because it happened in the first service last week. I know that <clears throat> God spoke very powerfully last week in the message and in your hearts. And Whenever God speaks powerfully, Satan is always there to um, help people misinterpret what he said or to read something wrong or hear something wrong. I believe Uh, Very much in the fact that um, um, Satan is a perverter. Last week, I I used a throwaway line uh, as (laughs) it killed Pat Robertson. It killed me too. I I was talking about we really want to be a church with all of the spirit and none of the hype. And then, in in the first service, I referred to Randy uh, Rainwater's announcement because he gave the you know the typical youth ministry announcement with a lot of superlatives. I mean, that's what youth ministry is, there's a lot of superlatives. And uh, it sounded, I went back and listened to the tape, and I, see, I can see how people would interpret that I was talking about him at the time. I was not talking about him. Let me tell you three things real quickly. First of all, <clears throat> youth ministry is a different animal than adult ministry. Um, there are uh, naturally, superlatives used in youth ministry that aren't necessary for adult ministry. That's one of the differences in in, um, in that kind of uh, ministry. Second of all, I have tremendous confidence in Randy as a, as a boy. We are so fortunate to have this guy. He is so neat, and I love his ministry. Thirdly, and here's the point: I would never in the world use any of you by name as a negative example anywhere. Um, that is, you talk about fighting dirty, that's like holding somebody's arms behind them, you know, and whacking them, you know, like they used to have in the old cowboy movies, Tonno would go to town and they would hop on him, and one guy would hold him, and the other guy would beat him up. You know, that's just not done. I, you know, that's not, uh, that's, that is not a spirit of God. So let me apologize for whatever participation I had in that miscommunication, blame the rest of it on Satan, and tell you with all of uh, assurance that uh, I would never violate um by, by embarrassing any of you of anything. I Really, that's not what I'm about. Um, <clears throat> this scripture has... And by the way, there was one more rep, mis, misinterpretation last week that somebody mentioned to me. When I was rehearsing <coughs> for you conversations that take place in my office that said... You know, I never hear from God. I don't know what it is, you know, to hear the voice of God. I was doing that in the first person. Some of you thought I was talking about myself. If I don't hear from God, you won't hear from me. I don't preach what I don't hear. So please don't think that that was, uh, um, you know, we're just struggling through Scripture and trying to figure it out from my standpoint because I have no understanding of Scripture. Now, here's what we're going to talk about this week. This few verses has such a richness to it, and I will not even be able to touch this uh, with any degree of depth this morning, but I do want to share with you basically what I believe Christ was saying in, in these verses. When he said, I have come to cast a fire upon the earth, he was talking very seriously about anyone who is taking Him seriously as Lord. You will discover that when you begin to take Jesus Christ seriously, something different happens in your life. Something different happens in your relationships. And he didn't want anybody to be surprised by that. You can be as religious for as long as you like. You can be a nominal Christian all of your life and never have any ways, but when you start to take Jesus Christ seriously, something is going to happen. He is going to use the conflict that you would in, will inevitably going through for your purification, for your testing, for non-believers... How can I say this? A witness to non-believers, and for further intensification. You know, when you get serious about Christ, and you get in a corner, you get even more serious about Christ... Because corners tend to make you serious. You either check in or check out. You know, Christianity is kind of like an egg. You either hatch or go rotten. You know, you don't just stay an egg. And so when you get in a corner, this Jesus is simply saying here, this is what's going to happen to you. I have given you something that is not a philosophy. I've given you something that will actually divide you from other people. And he says, I have a baptism to undergo. He's talking about his death, Romans six three. I read this every time I baptize folks, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now, what he means by that is very simple. You have had very disagreeable circumstances in your life that you knew you were going to have to go through, haven't you? I can always tell when my youngest trouble has gotten in, uh, my youngest trouble. <laughs> Freudian slip. My youngest son has gotten into trouble at school because I will go out, you know, usually I'll try to greet him in the yard when he comes back uh, from school, you know, give him a warm welcome home and all that kind of stuff. Whenever he's gotten in trouble, he is riding his bike down the street, barreling down the street. He hops off his bike, comes running toward me, says, I got my name on, my, on the board, but it wasn't my fault, it wasn't my fault. Let me tell you what it was like. We've told the kids, you know, and the kids know that when they get in trouble in school, they will be in trouble at home. I mean, that's just it. And he knows that. He wants to present his case, you know, as soon as he can. But the thing that amazes me is when he's had a good day, just kind of rides home. Hey, Dad, great day. Got a penguin pal, you know. When he's had a bad day, he's getting it over with. How distressed he is until it's accomplished. Do with me whatever you're going to do. I've got, I can't wait on this any longer. You've been in that position, haven't you? You employers have had to fire people and it's a horrible thing. And they've got families that they need to support, but you know that they're not right for the company and they are not, uh, And if they're not right for company, their their ultimate fulfillment won't be there, and the things that they need to be doing won't be there. But it makes you feel horrible to fire these people, I hope. And so you look for the right way to do it, and you might have to wait a while in order to get it accomplished in the right way, but you can't think about much else when you're around those people, can you? Because you just want it over with. You want it accomplished. You know there's a bomb ticking somewhere. And you just would like it to get here. You can't make it get here as fast um, as you want it there because if you did, you might do it in the wrong way. Well, Jesus had a cross and he knew it and he predicted it. And he knew it was coming and he couldn't think about much else. And whenever he thought about something else, he always thought of something else in connection with the cross. And so he said, how distressed I am until it is accomplished. There will always be, Suneco, there will always be a thought that is pressing down on me, that is interpreting everything I do. There will never be, far from my mind, the suffering that I have to go through. I will never be able to enjoy you all as much as I want to until I get with the Father. Those of you who used to run track and had your heats late in the track meet... It wasn't the same, you know? You sprinters, sure, get them over early, you know? Run the 100-yard dash and then sit up there and relax. Us distance people that had little bitty legs, couldn't run sprints, had to sit, and we always were uh, toward the end of the meet, and the whole meet were going up and down, up and down, trying to, you know, (laughs) track guys always do that. I never figured that out. Does that loosen anything up? Does that, I mean, is that, or do they just go like this, just to, you know, kind of wiggle? I don't know. We, but you couldn't really, really concentrate on what was happening in the me. All You might see, but everything was, I'm going to be a hurting cookie in just a little bit. There's going to be an oxygen deficit here. It's going to hurt. It always hurts when I run, you know. And you couldn't think about much else. Well, that's where Christ was. And that's why he said, I have a baptism to undergo how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Then. One more thing on the technicality. He said, "Do you suppose that I came came to grant peace on earth?" Now this confuses a lot of people. People like Madeline Murray O'Hare and all that kind of stuff say Christ contradicts himself all the time in the Bible. You know how can you how can you uh, believe in somebody who is called the Prince of Peace and keeps saying peace be with you, and then says something like, "Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth?" I tell you, no, but rather division. Just the opposite of how we usually think of Christ. For from now on, five members, and so on and so forth, will be divided. They will be divided, he says and again in the second verse. Let me tell you what he's talking about. This, is a, this piece is a political piece. It is a relational piece bought at any cost. It is not a deep inner peace that is everlasting. It is the kind of peace that goes against... He says, I am not going to try to bring the kind of peace that goes against the nature of things. There will be a natural war when somebody takes me seriously. There will be a natural division. I remember the first friend I ever had who ever took Christ seriously... He'd been just like all the rest of us, cussing and, you know, cutting up all the time and trying to get away from stuff uh, so that their parents didn't find out, all that kind of stuff. But Mike Armstrong was the first guy I ever knew who ever took Christ seriously. called him Army. And he never made a big deal of it. He made a commitment to Christ one time, and he just lived differently. And finally, I mean, he, he never said, don't you guys cuss, it offends me. He just stopped cussing. He said, don't you guys try to be dishonest with your parents. It offends me. He just didn't try to get it out of anything anymore at home. And all of us noticed. And we said, what happened, army? And he said, I'm following Christ. That's all he said. From that point on, there was no condemnation coming from army. No condemnation. But boy, you talk about conviction. There was a wall there. There was a sense in which not army, but something he had was against us. It was the nature of the thing. We were different. We were divided from then on. He loved us just like he always had. And he didn't think he was any better than we were. But there was a dividedness there. There was a a sense of dividedness there. It was because you don't change the nature of two different things. You don't change the nature of anything. When he took on Christ, he took on Christ's nature... Behold, you are created a new creature. See? He took on Christ's nature, and he had a different nature than the rest of us did from then on. <clears throat> I think it's uh, Bruce Richardson um, wrote a book called uh, From the Zoo or something like that. He's a veterinarian. He talks about the animal kingdom. He had a friend, Julie, who had a pet raccoon. Her name is <laughs> Bandit, very original. And she loved this raccoon, and the raccoon loved her. And he said, Julie down sometime, one time, and he said, Julie, I want you to know that around 20 to 24 months, there's a glandular change that takes place in raccoons. And they get wild. And so you have to be very, very careful with Bandit, because he can scratch, he can have an unprovoked attack on anybody. She looked at him, and she said, Doctor, you don't know this raccoon. Bandit would never do that. We're friends. We love each other. He would never do that. Months later, Julie was undergoing plastic surgery because, true to his nature, he had undergone the change, unprovokedly attacked her and lacerated her face. Why? Because he was mean? No, because that was his nature. Christ is simply saying here, I want to tell you, that you are not going to be of the world anymore. And I don't want you to be polyannic about it. And I don't want you to be condemning of it. That's just how the world is. There is going to be a dividedness there. And you have to be prepared for it. You know, the Bible says to speak the truth in love. <clears throat> well, I've seen a lot of Christianity that's the truth without love. And it's very, very cruel. There's condemnation after condemnation heaped on people every Sunday. There's guilt after guilt heaped on people every Sunday. And that's not right. It's not the nature of Christ. That's truth without love. But just as silly is love without truth. Because love without truth is mere sentimentality that will go through the meat grinder that will end up (coughs) pardon me in our injury, because somebody didn't love us enough to tell us the truth. Here, Christ simply loves enough to tell the truth, to say how it's going to be. And he says, he puts it in, of course he knew he was doing this, the paraphrastic future perfect tense, as you were telling your neighbors just last week, in the durative mode. And all that means to say is, it ain't going to change. It's going to always be like that. It'll always be like that. It says, even in families. And he points out that it'll happen in families simply because families are the apex of relationships until you meet Christ. And then he is the apex of relationships. That's why he's pointing to families here. It doesn't happen more often in families, but families will notice it a lot more quickly. There's also a sense in which the older generation and the younger generation here are juxtaposed. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and so on and so forth. You see the the younger and older generation, you shouldn't overplay that. That just simply says a new interpretation, a new confrontation with what was old religion will take place. But what he's saying is, I want to be honest with you, it's going to cost. It's going to cost. And if you are a person who hates conflict as most of us are. And if you are a person who will do almost anything to avoid confrontation, you have to watch out because you might end up being a traitor here and you might end up doing some damage. Now let's get into the why he said it. He said it because he does not want us to do damage either to ourselves or to other people or to the witness of God. We cannot buy peace without truth. Most of us try, and it always fails. Most of us try to get rid of the pain or to mask the pain rather than working through the pain and living in a realistic world and coping. Most of us try to be rescued by some simple answer Because that's so much more pleasant a thought than facing what we're going to have to face because we're following Christ. Most of us would rather have peace in little bits from time to time that don't last because it comes so much easier than a peace that does last that is deep and indwelling in our nature because we have been mature enough to face the world as it is. Let me say something that occurred to me while I was thinking through this that I'm going through and I bet some of the rest of you parents are going through also. My kids right now are making the transition into teenage years. And there's a lot of peer pressure. You remember? A lot of peer pressure in teenage years. And they are getting invited to places and getting invited to doing things that we have to think a long and hard time about. Obviously, we are not the most liberal parents in the world. We are very conservative. But our conservatism doesn't come because we don't trust our kids. Our conservatism comes because I, at least, have a real good memory. When my kid comes to me, and I'll use the oldest one because he is the reference point right now. When he comes to me and he says... Dad, there are some couples that are, you know, you know, there's no individual dating. He's 13 going on 14 years old. No individual dating. He understands that. But there are some couples gathering at a certain house. I'd like to go over and be a part of that. And I say to him, I'm sorry, Josh. There is two, I'm not sure of the supervision. And there is too much temptation in thinking of yourself as a couple at 14 years old, too much of a buildup of familiarity. I'm afraid what that will result in when you are 16 years old. And he's absolutely aghast. And he says, you don't trust me. Well, unless I was real weird growing up, from the time I hit puberty... Until the time I got married, I could not think about much else than my uh, the old awakening body trick. Woo! This is great! This feels good! I thought about my body constantly. And even more constantly, I thought about other people's bodies. I mean, I lived in the real world. Now you tell me a Christian kid who doesn't think about that. You know, who goes over in the corner and says, well, Lord, it's just you and me. I don't want to think about that stuff, you know. Now, back then, boys probably thought about it a lot more than girls did. I don't know. But I can tell you, it isn't that way today. Girls have gotten liberated, you know. And they're thinking about it all the time, too. Now, is it that I don't trust Josh? No. I think he's a wonderful kid. He's a wonderful kid. And I trust his character And I trust that he wants to love God, but do I trust his body? Not for a second. And I never will. Because he's got a body like I got a body. See? And it's alive. (laughs) And you can't, you can't go. And when, when that conflict comes, see? And I don't believe, boy, you're the strictest, you're the meanest, you're the, you know, and we say, go ahead, get it out, you know, go ahead. You can't say anything you know, derogatory about my character, but you can slam around and get angry and all that kind of stuff. It would be so much. I know why parents let their kids do everything. I know why they do. It is so much more peaceful to say, sure, go ahead. I mean, but at what price do we buy peace? At what price may I... Be leading my kid into a temptation he can't handle. What kind of spiritual life does anybody have at 13 or 14 years old? How long has anybody been able to walk with the Lord and build up that kind of strength? I mean, not many people can do it in their 20s and 30s. Am I to kid, am I to kid myself and say my kid's any holier or has any more Christ-like character than anybody else? That he's going to be able to withstand that temptation? Uh-uh. No, sir, I know him too well and I remember too well. I live in the real world, and I will not buy peace at the price of letting my kid go into that kind of temptation. There's going to be a division. And until he can divide himself from that temptation, I'll be pleased to divide him from that temptation. And I'll take the heat. Won't take that kind of... There's another thing I was thinking about. Somebody asked um, Becky last week, why are your two kids... Or, or the, we can't tell about the third one yet. She, she included all the kids, but I just include the older two. Why are they so strong? And they are. Boy, they got a lot of faults. But those kids, if Beck and I died tomorrow, they'd go right on. They've got that kind of inner strength. And Becky answered, I had never thought about this before, but she answered correctly. I'll tell you why they're strong. We have never rescued them we have never rescued them when they had a teacher that hated them, and all of us has had teachers that hated him we have never gone in and say you don't read i've got a wonderful kid here you know this kid is i mean you're a misreading this kid all of my kids are above average lake lake will be gone all the children are above average we used to we had a huge nursery or, or daycare preschool where i was And it was hilarious to watch the mothers come in. in. Ninety percent of those mothers would come in, and somewhere in the conversation they would work in, of course, my child is above average, much advanced. We have never, if they had someone picking on them, if they had a, a teacher who hated them, we have never rescued them. We have always said to them, that's how the world is. All of your life, you will have people misunderstanding you. All of your life, you will have people angry at you. All of your life, you will have people picking on you. You had better learn now how to deal with it. We will be here and we will be praying for you and we do. I mean, we spend a lot of time in prayer for our kids. And we will... He'd be here to offer advice and we will help you on whatever school projects that you need us to take you to library or whatever and so on and so forth to satisfy that teacher but you have to learn somewhere how to deal with the world as it is and not to hide you know what happens when you keep rescuing your kids they grow up looking for someone to rescue them and they marry an enabler somebody who will let them be a child for the rest of their lives And there are some very sick relationships built. Why? Because mom and dad always pulled me out of it. You know what happens to their theology? They don't say, God, mold me into your character. They say, God, rescue me from this. Make the pain stop. Jesus was saying there's going to be pain. There's going to be division. You can't buy peace at any cost. And no matter how bad your kids are hurting, they will continue to hurt long-term unless you deal with reality like it is. Very important. Now, I'm running way out of time, but let me go ahead and talk some more. (laughs) Separation... What it is for holiness is a combination of love and truth. And separation is a tricky thing. Many Christians withdraw from the world. I don't have that particular philosophy. Northland does not have that particular philosophy. We don't come together in order to be separate. We come together in order to be re-energized, to go back out and be with the world. If there's ever a class... I want to teach, and Beck and I think maybe we'll teach it together, it's how to be in the world and not of the world. Because I really believe that that's our ministry out there. And I believe that those people who are not like us need our love, and we need to love them, and we don't need to be obviously cut off from them. But there is a valid separation. Number one, there's a separation in that we don't have to make other people feel comfortable with the kind of lives that they're leading that are directly opposed to the gospel. We don't have to do that. And nine times out of ten, we shouldn't even try. I got a letter this week from a former parishioner. She was angry and hurt. She was very angry with me. When I had known her, she has since moved away. When I had known her, she was living a life that was directly opposed to what explicitly says in the New Testament. And I did not say to her, that's okay. I told her that I loved her. I told her we wanted her at the church. I told her God loved her. I told her Christ wanted to have her life. But I would never go to her and say, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because it did. It did matter what it says in the New Testament is true. It's written for our protection. And when we live opposite the New Testament, I'm telling you right now there's going to be consequences. It's not written for our entertainment. It's written for our protection. And I knew that as long as she lived like she did, she was not only damaging herself, she was damaging future relationships. And so, frankly, I was not as gregarious and not as relaxed with her as I was with some other people, and she noticed it. And boy, she wrote me a letter this week and told me in no uncertain terms, she had found some pastor that just would go camping with her and her boyfriend, and he didn't care, and he didn't condemn her, and so on and so forth. Well, okay, okay. Maybe he has a different style of evangelism, and that's okay, and I don't know who the guy is, and maybe he knows what he's doing, that's great. But there will always be a sense of distance between holiness and non-holiness. It's not that I am holy. There's a sense of, of distance between me and the people I want to be like that I desire to go after, but it's not. And there's a, there's a sense of discomfort between me and the people who have pure spirits because my pure, my spirit is far from pure much of the time. And I love to be around people, but I always feel like I'm going to be exposed, like they're, they're going to read me, you know. those Especially those people have the gift of discernment say, Colonel! Just look at me. and go, Colonel! And I go, guilty, guilty, guilty! There's a sense of discomfort. But you know what? It's because it's true. And I would rather deal with truth than to buy peace at the cost of what the gospel is really worth. Secondly, we are to be able to be separated, to be able to be divided. Because it's a protection to susceptible believers. There are some of us that could have a very worldly ministry. We have such a close walk with God, but not very many of us. If we're honest with ourselves, I could never be uh, have a ministry to porno stores. I could never go down on Orange Blossom Trail because I, I know the weakness of my flesh. I cannot even look at a dirty book because that picture would stay with me forever. I don't even touch it because I know the weakness of my flesh. And so I know what to stay away from. I know what to keep distance from. And... That is important for susceptible believers. There was a church in Corinth and they had some sin in the middle of the church and they, they ex, they, they excommunicated the people who insisted on that kind of behavior, not because they wanted to condemn the people, but because they wanted to protect the innocent. They wanted to protect them from that example. What we do is an example. We are imitators. There's a poem, and I can't remember exactly the words, but it's um, all the water in the world. Anyhow, I can't remember the the words. I'm going to race back and learn it for the second service. Can't sink sink a ship unless it gets in. The danger point is when it can get in. And, and, And at our various stages of maturity in christ sin can get in i was talking to somebody at the retreat i smoked for years you know and please smoking's a sin like any other sin i mean all of us have these we some of us drink or uh, um, eat too much and you know have impure thoughts and all that kind of stuff but so i'm not picking out smokers but the guy told me about and i and and I haven't smoked for 15 years. But they were smoking, and I still like to smell the stuff. I like to smell cigarettes. So they were standing out there smoking, and, and the guy is, was, you know, dealing with himself. And by the way, if you smoke, don't ever stop trying to quit. You'll do it. You'll do it someday. Just keep trying. You'll do it. God will help you. You'll do it. Let me give you that encouragement. So anyhow, he was still trying. But he told me about one time he went outside here and was having a cigarette out there. Some little girl came up to him, tugged on his coat and said, Mr., and he looked down. She goes, I want to smoke when I get big. Oh, man. Oh, just shoot me and get it over with. I mean, he still remembers that whenever he lights up. It's awful. Well, the reason that if, if you smoke, go out and do it in your car, you know, is it because you'd there's a susceptibility in all of us. And that's why there can't always be the easiness and the naturalness with destructive behavior. And fourth, or I mean third, I'm sorry, the other reason is because of the witness of truth. It is so important for God's kingdom. It's so important because. Let me go over here. We have not just a negative role in the world. Many people get into Christianity because they want to be protected from the world. They don't want to be like the world, and that's kind of a negative thing, see? Christians, though, have a positive role in the world. That's, we have to get the best defense is a good offense. We have most of us not even gotten to the place where we're playing offense yet where we're adding positive as much as we are defending, oh, I don't want want to destroy my life, you know, where we are taking charge. And we are the ones that have the truth and display the truth. That is the positive role. And that's why we don't deal with sin and we don't spend our whole time trying to not sin. We spend time trying to do what God wants us to do. Because if that's how you spend your life, that's the influence you're going to have, see? It's real important. We need to realize a couple of things. First of all, we need to realize that we will be on the winning side because there is nothing in that world that satisfies anybody but Jesus Christ. Anybody who's looking for peace will never find it for very long in anything, and you know that from your own life, don't you? I mean, some of you have done it all, and you've not found it, and that's why you're here. God made us that way. You don't have to force your views on anybody. They'll find them. They'll find them. They'll be back because that's the way we're made. But here's the point. The point is that we have a positive role. Displaying the truth because the truth is the only thing that lasts. It's the only thing that gives you peace. The truth is not negotiable. The truth will never break. Only the people against the truth will break. It is not negotiable, and we have to establish that truth. Now, we can trivialize the truth all we want. People say, well, what's the true way of worship? Well, that's a trivialization. It doesn't matter how you worship God. I always kid the ushers telling them, well, we're going to have a class some here someday on how to be an usher at North, and we'll, As people come in the door, we'll go clapping or non-clapping, hand-raising or non-hand-raising, you know, head-down or non-head-down, you know. Head down or non-head down, you know? Embarrassed or not embarrassed? We've got sections for everybody here. It doesn't matter. Those are are trivializations. Those are all, they're not trivial, but they are simply a matter of how we've been raised to worship and how we are most comfortable in worship. All of those things are wonderful. Where we get in in trouble is when we absolutize the relative and relativize the absolute. This is the truth. That Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world. And until we learn that, we will not have a positive effect. We will simply be defending ourselves from a world that is angry and hostile. Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world. And when you live the truth, you have a godly inheritance, a godly heritage. I'm sorry. Let me tell, tell one story and then we'll take communion. <laughs> I really want to just talk on and on. Come back next sermon. There's a story about Immanuel Kant's father. Now, when I was in school, when I was in college, everybody talked to to Immanuel Kant to impress one another because he was the philosopher, see? So well Kant says, you know, stood around talking. And there's a story about his father that his true story, he was traveling across Poland to get to his native um, uh, land of Silesia, and was set upon by robbers. And they beat him up and they took all of his goods and they asked him, is this all the money you have? And he was scared and he said, yes, yes, you've gotten everything. Then they just left and he took off and he realized, watch this, that he had some gold sewn in the hem of his robe just for such an occasion as that. And he also realized he had told him a falsehood. He literally went back and said, I'm sorry. You asked me if that's all the money I had. I've got this gold in the hem of my robe here. I was so scared I just forgot about it. I didn't mean to lie. I would never lie. Take the gold. They gave him back his purse, gave him back his horse, gave him back his prayer book. Now, you may think, okay, so that's the reward of truthfulness. Look deeper and look longer. I've often wondered what kind of a father Immanuel Kant would have to have such depth and such thirst for truth. The reward for that truthfulness was not the purse, it was the son. When we operate in that kind of truth, God passes that thirst for truth down to our children. And when they're looking for the truth, they will never, Be satisfied with anything but God. Josh came to me last week and said, Dad, I want you to sit down with me and I want you to tell me why Christianity is right and all these other religions are wrong. They all believe the same thing we do. They all have their holy scriptures. I want you to tell me and I want you to to explain to me and then I will believe. (laughs) You know, I love that. I love it. You know what we're going to be doing all summer too, don't you? Because here's a kid who's not going to buy what I've got. He's going to buy it when he sees it for himself. He's after the truth. And that doesn't threaten me at all. I would much rather have children who would would see it for themselves and place their life in it than believe it because dad did. Well, I was always raised a Christian. The truth. The truth costs you but there is no other road there is no other road that leads to peace let's have a prayer for communion by the way if you've never taken communion here if you're a follower of Christ you are welcome to take communion and then um, we will do a song where is it Ron what are we doing now remind me what, what we're doing now Okay, very good, very good. Let me pray with you, and then I'm just going to... All our men are out of town, so I hope we have enough ushers for this. If I don't, I'm going to start pointing fingers, all right? Let me pray with you. God, we come confessing our sin. We don't think any more highly of ourselves this morning than we really are hasn't got anything to do with self-esteem, has to do with reality. We want to be comfortable. We want to have peace at any cost. Help us grow up. Help us take you seriously. Help us put behind us the sin we need to put away so that we can live really in your spirit. And let this sacrament be a testimony to your power in our lives, your nature, as we take you into us. Let us let you free in our lives to live out in us your character of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Would the ushers please come forward? We will pass out the elements... Both at once, if you will take the basket, pass it to your neighbor, get the elements, and then when everybody has both elements in their hands, we will take communion together. And we acknowledge your presence in our midst this morning. That fulfills your promise that where two or three of us are gathered together in your name. There you will be in the midst of us. Lord, we rejoice that You love us. We rejoice that You died for us. And we rejoice that You live, that we might live also. Lord, speak to us this morning. Your living Word. Encourage us. Empower us. Make us bold for You, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. If you'll keep your scriptures open to that section, we will go down and explain some technicalities about the section and then... We'll talk about its broader and deeper meaning as we usually do. I don't know whether our friend the bird is back this week, isn't he? <clears throat> Most churches God sends a dove to, not us. What is that? Some blackbird or something? What is it? A, a, a crested flycatcher fly with little bitty roller skates on. I noticed. Those... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm thinking about building a little trap door up in that window so he can just come in whenever he wants to. I feel sorry for him. Uh, Anyhow, we're going to have a a contest to name this bird. Um, This week's message is a difficult one. If If you are unfamiliar with Christianity and you are not long in it, It's very difficult to understand the character, seeming character change of Jesus here because Jesus is the Prince of Peace and Jesus is the one who continues to come and greet people by saying peace be with you. And then he comes in this passage and says don't think that I've come to bring peace. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. That's what kind of misunderstanding or what kind of shallow understanding people like Madeline Murray O'Hara says this guy was nuts you know he contradicted himself all the time these are the kind of passages that uh, sometimes your um, rationalistic friends will say how in the world can you believe in that stuff when it he says the opposite uh, of what he usually says what's the deal here well This was at a time when Jesus was realizing the ostracism that serious spirituality causes. He was realizing it existentially. I mean, he was feeling every bit of it. He said, in essence, in this passage, there is a departure from religiosity to serious following the person of God. And when you get serious, something's going to happen. And I've come to bring that something to you. And in essence, it's fire. It's a fire in your life. It's a fire that will purify you. It will not be pleasant, but it will purify you. It is a fire that will burn out in your life everything that's not going to last. It's a fire that will separate you in ways from non-believers. And I'll follow up that in just a minute. But you will be separated from non-believers. in not so much in physical ways, but in spiritual distant ways. There will be a sense of a distinction there. And it will be a fire that will intensify your love for me. Because when you get serious about who I am, you go one direction or the other. You go one direction or the other. There is no neutrality in somebody who is serious about Jesus Christ. Now, the world always votes for a neutral religion. It's okay to believe whatever you believe as long as you're not real serious about it. But that's not what Jesus Christ is all about. Jesus said, I have a baptism to undergo, and the baptism was his death. Reading in, in uh, Romans 6 3, do, do you not know that when you are baptized, you die with Christ? The baptism was his death. As all of us have to realize when we come to follow Christ, that our self dies. We die to ourself so that we can live to him. Now, for anybody who has an unpleasant experience to go through, you want to get it over with. And when Jesus said, how distressed I am until it's accomplished, you know what that means, don't you? When you were little and you were being punished, did your mother ever say, when your father gets home, I'm telling him what you did. And it is 18 days until your dad gets home. I mean, it could have been only an hour away, but you're just wet. Come on home, let's get this over with. I can always tell when my youngest has had a bad day at school, because usually I try to stand out in the yard when he gets home from school and greet him. When he's had a bad day, he is barreling down the street. Barreling. Hops on his bike, lays it in the yard and says, I got my name on the board, but it wasn't my fault. Let me tell you what happened. <laughs> he knows, we've told him, that if he gets in tr- sc- trouble at school, he's going to get in trouble at home. You know, we're not going to rescue him. He's, I'll say more about that later, too. We're not going to rescue him. He knows he's got a punishment waiting on him. And he knows... That inside his little body, he doesn't want to delay it. He just want, he throws himself on the mercy of the court. Do whatever you have to do. I just want to get this over. I can't stand it. You know that when you have something that is right, but very difficult to do, sometimes you have to wait for the right time. See, if you, if you rush it, it's going to be worse. You're not going to be able to do it in God's way. You employers, for example, have had to fire people. You knew they weren't right for the company. You knew the company wasn't right for them. And you go through this horrible... I've, I've had to do this myself. I, you go through this horrible thing of, how is our family going to survive it? You know, I just want to rescue them, and, but I can't. has to be done. And so you wait for the right time, but you can't really have a normal relationship with that guy knowing what you've got to do. I mean, you can carry on all the superficialities, but you just wish it would get over. You just wish it would get done with. Anything that we have that we are facing that we know is going to be painful, we are going to have a dynamic of sneko, which means a preoccupation with. Life can go on as normal, but it is not normal. And when Jesus faced the cross... Can you imagine knowing that one day, you didn't know exactly when, you're going to have to suffocate to death over a number of hours. If it were me, I would not be able to think about much else. When I looked at a person and I knew that it was for that person that I was going to go through that, I wouldn't see that person the same. I would always be thinking about how I loved them in order to go through them go, go through that for them but I would always be wondering when it was going to come and wanting it to be over with because it was such intense pain how distressed I am until it is accomplished but you notice he didn't rush it he did not rush it one more technicality the verb tense from now on sums up the meaning, that, that's not really not in the Greek, it sums up the meaning of will be. The will be is in, paraphrastic, future perfect, as of course you were telling your neighbor last week, in the durative sense, it means it's always going to be like that. It is always going to, there will always be a sense of dividedness between Christians who are serious about Jesus Christ and other people who are just Christians and non-believers. There will always be a sense of division. Jesus said "That's that's how it will always, always, always be. I remember the first one of my peers that got serious about Jesus Christ. Now, all of us thought we were Christians. I mean, I went to the Methodist Church with my grandmother every week. Didn't I? Thank you very much. I knew those hymns. Didn't I? Thank you very much. Third pew... From the back, on the left-hand side, thank you very much, I was a Christian. I was there, wasn't I? But this guy named Mike Armstrong got saved. I didn't know what that term was. Now, when he got saved, when he committed his life to Jesus Christ, when he said, and for any of you who have not done this yet, this is the process. You go to the Lord and you say, I am a sinner. That's who I am. And I have no right to come to heaven. And I will never be able to have a right to come to heaven because I owe you everything I have already. And I will never be good enough. It's only by your grace and by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that I can come. And today, I lay my life at the foot of the cross. I depend on what He did for me. And I ask you to come into my life and make me whatever you want me to be. That's the process. That's the basic prayer. And Mike did that, but he didn't tell us. So we went on with our normal lives, and everybody was cussing, you know. You know, we were junior high, hang out to pool hall, cuss a little while, you know, trying to be big. Yeah, well, listen to this. You know. You think that's a dirty word? Listen to this one, you know trying to be bad. Army never said a word about what he'd gone through. He just didn't cuss anymore. And he didn't try to deceive his parents anymore. And he didn't have all the money he used to have. So anyhow, I nailed him. said, Army, what's going on? What do you mean? How come you're not cussing? He said... Um, I made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to do that anymore. I said, great. So we went on with our friendship, hung around every day, but you know what? From then on, there was something between us. Army never acted holier than thou. He never said to me, you are wrong in doing this. He never corrected any of my behavior. But there was a presence, a spiritual sense in him that I felt was against me. Not condemnation. Conviction. They're two different things. He loved me like he'd always loved me. And it wasn't so much what, what he was about. But there was a spirit in him that I just felt constantly. Well, scripture says there will be. There will always be. And it will it will overtake families. And the reason that he points out to families in here is because in a family situation, the apex of relationships in this world are family relationships until you get to God, and then he supersedes that. And so he points that out even in a family situation. He could point the same thing out in friends, but he points it out in a family situation to heighten the importance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is so important that there is a difference. And there's a difference not because of the kind of people we instantly become, but because of the two natures of the two different worlds. See, in the spirit world, it is healing and life and peace and love. And in the physical world, it's competition and cutthroat and let me get my self-esteem by putting you down. That's the way it is in the world. This is the nature of the world. And Christ doesn't condemn it. He just says that's the way it is. That's the way it'll always be. There's a, um, I think his name is Bruce Richardson, wrote a book uh, called uh, Views from the Zoo. He's a veterinarian, Christian. And he sat down with a friend, Julie was her name one time, who had a little pet raccoon. There's somebody over near Glen Arden Heights that has little raccoons, leads them around on leashes. Cute. Sat down with her, and she had a little baby raccoon, and his name originally was Bandit. Can you imagine that? Named him herself. Sat down and said, Julie, honey, I want to tell you that Bandit's getting older now. And around the age of 20 months or 24 months, um raccoons go through a hormone change. Their body changes. And they can become very wild. They can attack unprovokedly. I want you to be careful. And Julie looked at him and said, Doctor, you don't know Bandit. We are friends. We have always been friends. Bandit would never do that. You just don't know him like I know him. And the doctor said, yeah, he, he really will, Julie. No, he won't. Some months later, he visited her in the hospital. She had had plastic surgery. The raccoon had lacerated her face viciously, unprovokedly. Was he condemning raccoons? No. He was just saying that's the nature, and you can't change the nature of a raccoon. You see... When Scripture says, speak the truth in love, we, we sometimes leave out the truth because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. And so, now, I, I do know that there are churches that speak the truth without love, and that's cruel. There are some churches that you can go into, some people that you go into, some people that never go to church. So when they become a Christian, they heap condemnation and guilt on people. That's not the character of Christ. It's not the character of Christ. So truth without love is cruel, but love without truth is silly. It's mere sentimentality that will eventually injure us. And when Christ said, there will be a dividing line, it's not because He wanted it. He was just telling us the truth. You will get hurt. There will be condemnation in the world. You can't buy peace at any price. You just can't do it. It's not worth it. Will I give you peace? Yeah, but it'll be a deep, realistic peace. It will not be one because you're afraid of confrontation. Now, most Christians are neat people, love God. They just hate confrontation. They hate conflict. All of us are like that to a degree. Unless you're a lawyer. How many lawyers are you? <clears throat> you guys love it, don't you? <clears throat> no, some people are very... There are some marriages that are conflict-habituated. I mean, they, that's their intimacy. They fight. That's how they get intimacy. Well, okay. But most of us... I mean, it works, you know, for some couples. Until somebody gets tired and accumulates all those scars... But most of us hate conflict. We would do practically anything to avoid it. And Jesus Christ is saying, you can't. You can't buy peace at the expense of truth. Because the peace is too short-lived. Now let me just go through some things that I was thinking about while while I was thinking of illustrations for this. You parents... I'm living this. You parents right now are in a conflict-habituated situation if you're raising children who are going into teenage years or who are in teenage years. It's part of it. It is part of it. You will constantly have those kids coming to you and saying, Can I do this and can I do that? And you've got to make a judgment here. You've got to make a judgment. You've got to say, where do I draw the line? What is good for them? Now, if the response is negative, guess what's going to happen? Explosion City! You're mean! Everybody gets to do this but me! You're too strict! You're too conservative! And you, you know, <clears throat> yeah. But you know what? <clears throat> it makes a difference whether you try to buy peace now at the expense of having an argument and have a big war later on at the expense of a mistake our kids right now are old enough to be invited to boy girl stuff and they're old enough their bodies are waking up you know that remember that when your body woke up you go "Woo! this is fun i'm gonna be thinking about this a lot of my decisions don't come from rational um, judgments as much as they do it from memory. I make a lot of my decisions on memory of myself. Unless I was real perverted, and there's, there's a case for that, but unless I, was, unless I was real perverted, from the time my hormones kicked in to the time I get married, I didn't think about much else than my body and everybody else's. I mean, it was fun to think about that. And it felt good to think about that. Now, are my boys any different than I was? Well, no, they're not. Huh? No, they're not. So when they come to me and they say, Dad, well, there's some couples getting together here. I've got to make a judgment. Am I putting them into a situation Asking for more spiritual maturity than they can possibly have. How much spiritual maturity can you have in your early teens? I mean, uh -uh, uh uh-uh, no sir. Not my kids, not anybody's kids. I mean, that's more spiritual maturity than most of us have 30 and 40. Single people have the same problems. And so am I going to put them into that situation to avoid a fight? Lead us not into temptation. Is it me? Do I think my kids are rotten kids? Absolutely not. I think they're great kids. I think they're wonderful kids. Do I know they love God and they want to love God? Absolutely. Do I trust their bodies? Not for a second. <laughs> I don't. I live in the real world. We've all got these bodies that just kind of take over and steer us, you know? I live in the real world. I'm not going to hide from that. And that is ne- engenders conflict. It engenders conflict. And yes, Christians are to take more precautions than other people because we know better than anybody else what sin does. We've recognized it. We've recognized it. And yeah, I'm not going to be as liberal as other parents are. That's the way it is. Avoiding conflict. Costs. Peace doesn't come at any price. Not real peace. Not lasting peace. Somebody asked last week asked becky last week why are your boys so strong now our boys have a lot of faults and you can be strong good and strong bad and we realize that but there's one trait they have and that is they are strong people beck and i for the oldest two anyhow we could die tomorrow and they would go right on I re- they have that kind of character they have that kind of strength and becky said and i would never thought about this but it's true Becky said, the reason that they are as strong as they are is because we have never rescued them. We have always let them deal with the world as it is. Yeah, our kids have teachers that hate them like everybody else. But we don't go down and say, you don't understand. This is my kid. I mean, you've got a false impression. I have a very special kid here. We had we had a, a daycare, a state-licensed preschool at the... Uh, at the last church and it was hilarious to hear these mothers come in. I mean, 90% of them would work into the conversation somehow their kid was was way advanced for his age. I mean, my kid is very very advanced. Um so we have a tendency when our kids are in a spot, don't we, to go down and rescue them. Or if there's somebody picking on them, we have a tendency a desire to call up the parents and straighten it out, don't we? Well, I just call up. Obviously, she doesn't know her son's doing this. You poor baby. You know what happens when you rescue kids? They grow up all their lives never growing up. They look for other people to rescue them. And they marry what is called an enabler so that they never do have to grow up. That's why we've got babies... 35, 40, 50 years old that have never grown up because somebody rescued them. Listen to their prayers if they're Christians. Their prayers won't go, God, teach me. God, mold me. God, do whatever it takes. God, rescue me. Help me. Go out and win the battle for me. Help me not to have to face this. See? sometime, as painful and as much conflict as it calls for, you've got to look at your kids and say, Honey, there's going to be people all your life that hate you. you got to learn to deal with them. There are going to be people all your life that are picking on you, that are trying to make themselves a big man or a big woman at your expense. You've got to learn to deal with people like that. You see, when you buy peace at the expense of responsibility, there's war on down the line. There are consequences on down the line. And so Jesus was simply saying, I won't buy peace at the expense of truth. Let me show you a scripture that I don't have included in there. Usually I just expect you to read over the scriptures I have in there and But in 2 Thessalonians, let me show you something. Chapter 2, verse 10. Let me show you the character of maturity. He's talking here about the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist or an antichrist. And it says in verse 10, chapter 2, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive, look at what it says, a love of the truth, so as to be saved. Now, wickedness deceives It looks like there are easy answers. It looks like we can get out of this or we can just avoid this and we never really have to grow up. And so therefore, we can accept Christ and have our problems solved or we can pray our way out of this or we can do this or that and never really have to go to people or go inside of ourselves and say, God, what are you trying to teach me here? Looks like we can do that, but that's deception. That's deception. The only thing that will finally lead us to Jesus Christ is a love of the truth. And you know what? When we speak about the truth, people will end with Jesus Christ somewhere down the line because you don't reach the truth until you reach Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that satisfies as the truth can satisfy like Jesus Christ. Nothing. You know, Christians... We don't have to talk anybody into anything. We really don't. Because there is nothing out there that they will stop with until they get to God. That's how they're made. That's how they're made. There is a... You remember that story I told about the the bull in the field and the two guys out in the field? And the bull chases them, you know? And the one guy's running... you know, they're looking for some place to hide. And one guy sees a tree and he hops up in the tree. And the other guy sees a hole in the ground, a cave. And he dies in the cave. And the bull's standing there still wanting to kill him. And he goes over to the tree. And the guy come from the cave comes shooting out. And the bull sees him and he chases him. And the guy runs around, runs around, dies back in the cave. And he goes over to the tree. The bull goes over to the tree. And the guy comes shooting out of the cave again. Goes, <laughs> runs, chases this guy all over the side, Dies back in the cave again does that three or four times. Finally, the guy comes shooting out of the cave and the guy in the tree says, stay in the cave, stupid. And the guy's running he says, I'm not stupid. There's a bear in that cave. <laughs> Listen. There's a bear in every cave out there. Every cave. You cannot be satisfied in sex, in drugs, in any kind of painkiller. You cannot be satisfied in popularity, You cannot be satisfied in material wealth. Every place you think is a hiding place has a bear in it. Except Jesus Christ. You don't have to talk anybody into anything. As long as people look for the truth, they will end up with God. You are on the winning side. See? But it takes a love of the truth in order to be saved. And when Christians... Hi, hon. He's pecking at the window now. When Christians... I'm going to think of a sermon illustration that'll fit for this guy. I've got to use this somehow. When Christians do what they can to avoid conflict and avoid the truth, avoid living like there is a truth, we are not giving a good example to the world. We're just not. Three things that you need to realize. First... When you are living in a world of sin, you need not to rescue them and their feelings from feeling uncomfortable. Now that does not mean you have to be an obnoxious, condemning person. But you need, when there is someone who is living in obvious sin, not to agree to that and not to tell them that's okay. I received a letter this week from a gal who was furious with me. I mean, she was hurt. And I could, it was just all over the letter. And she said, you know, when I knew her, she was living the kind of life that was very obviously antithetical to what was in scriptures. Came to church. She, part of her really wanted to go for God, you know, but the other part of her just didn't want to give up anything in order to do it. Didn't want to put God's will ahead of her own will. Well, I talked to her about a week ago, and, and I was cordial, you know. But I was not as free as I would be with somebody who was one in the Lord. You know, I just, I didn't have that sense of freedom. Boy, I got this letter. It said, you know, I never felt accepted by you. I never felt accepted by the church. Um, I just, I always felt uncomfortable. Never felt fully accepted. Just kept saying that over and over again. And I, you know what? I gotta own up to that. I gotta own up to that. But to me, it's not bad. It's okay. I don't want to make somebody feel comfortable in a lifestyle that will destroy them. I don't want to make somebody think it's okay to develop a style of relationship that sooner or later will come back to haunt them and destroy other people. I don't want that. And if a person wants to hate me for it, or if a person wants to feel bad or hold a grudge against God's church because they were uncomfortable, got nothing to do with acceptance, has everything to do with truth and reality. If God says it's wrong in the book, sooner or later it's going to destroy you. And if my own sons were living in a relationship like that, I would not accept the relationship. Not because I don't love them and not because they will ever stop being my sons, but because I would hate to see what it would do to them and the person that they were living in that relationship with and, and the people that were taking their example. See? Sooner or later you've got to choose between a feel-good gospel and a true gospel. The object of Christianity is not to satisfy us. It's to change us. It is not to make us feel good. Is to help us have the character of Christ in this world. It's that simple. The second thing is that there are susceptible people, susceptible Christians. All of us are susceptible to some degree. But we have to draw a line, there has to be a division between righteous living and sinful living. Because there are always weaker brothers and sisters who are looking and taking the example. Always. I was having a conversation with a guy at the retreat who was having a cigarette at the time. And I've, I smoked for seven, eight years. So I know what it's like. And I know I quit 500 times before I finally did, you know. I know what it's like. So I'm not condemning cigarette smokers. But he was telling me, you know, he kept trying to quit. And I said, well, don't give up. And, and all of you who do smoke, don't give up. I mean, that sin is no worse or better than any other sin. It's just something that'll destroy you. And God doesn't want you to destroy it, but don't give up. I mean, God will continue to honor your obedience when, you, when you're trying to quit. So anyhow, this guy was telling me one day he was standing outside the church, you know, having a cigarette. This little girl comes up, <sighs> pulled on his coat. Mister, he looked at me and said, Yeah. She said, I want to smoke when I grow up. Ugh. he wanted to die. See, people are susceptible. It doesn't matter how much sin is out there. There's all kinds of sin in the world. There's all kinds of sin surrounding us and temptation surrounding us. It doesn't matter how much sin... What matters is how much gets in. All of the water in the world can't sink a ship unless it gets in. All of the sin in the world can't sink a life unless it gets in. And the point is the reason there has to be a distance, not of love and not of care and not of concern, but of comfortability. A non-peace is because... There are people who are taking an example. We are imitative creatures. And if we see something modeled, sooner or later, we're going to try it. And I wish it weren't so, but it is so. It is so. And the third reason is simply, we got to live in a way where truth is non-negotiable. Because you know what? Truth is non-negotiable. Truth never breaks. People who are against truth break. Truth never breaks. Now, there are some who try to make everything the truth, and by so they, by doing so, they trivialize the truth. I mean, there are some who say, this is the true way to worship. This is, you know, uh, I heard one time a great saying it says, never absolutize what is relative, and never relativize what is absolute. And boy, that's the key. That is really the key. There are some people who try to absolutize what is relatives. You know, this is the true way to worship. I get our writers every once in a while about, you know, learning to, when people come in the door, goes, Just to, 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 you know, teach them. Clapping or non-clapping, you know? <laughs> Holy hand raising or non-holy hand raising? Hymn singing or non-hymn singing? You know, the point is all of them are valid. But none of them are absolute. All of us have ways that we have been taught to worship. And all of us have more ways that we will be taught to worship. But the way of worship is not an absolute principle. It's a relative principle. It's how God is 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 teaching you in your individual heart. And there's that kind of freedom in this body to raise your hand or clap or, you know, have a devotional language while you're singing or whatever you want to do. That's fine as long as we don't herd people into the way of worship. This is not a herd. These are people. And let the Spirit do as He will with the individual heart. So you can't absolutize what is relative, but neither can we relativize what is absolute. And we need to teach a love of the truth, a love of the truth, because it will end in Christ. There are so many of you parents, again, so many evangelical people who are so concerned with the automatic transference of Christian principles on the strength of your personality. Let me tell you a better way. Build into your children, build into your friends a thirst to learn what is true. And they will end up with God. And they will end up with God for with a personal faith. Let me tell you two stories, and then, I'll, and then we'll have communion. First of all, Immanuel Kant. Remember him, when we were in the, when in the 60s, Emmanuel Kant was the big philosopher. He was the intellectual. And philosophy majors would stand around and impress one another by quoting Kant. That's I mean, what, do you, what Immanuel Kant would say in his you know, critique of pure reason I mean, it was big stuff, heady stuff. There's a story about his father, who was so dedicated to the search for truth that one time he was making a horseback journey across Poland to get to his native Silesia, the, the country, and he was set upon by robbers. And they beat him up, and then they took all of his stuff, and they kept saying, have you given us everything you have? And he was scared to death. He goes, yeah, I think you've got everything. (laughs) And then they sent him off. Well, 20 feet down the trail, he realized that he had gold sewed in the hems of his garment for just such an occasion. But they had asked him, have you given us everything? And he had said yes, and he realized he had told him a lie. He turned around, went back to the robbers, and said, you know, I lied to you. I was so scared and so mixed up, I honestly didn't mean to, but I did. Look, I've got gold here in the hem of my garment. They gave him back his horse and his purse and his prayer book. Now, on a surface level, you think, well, now that's God honoring honesty, but go deeper and see where the honor really is, see where the result really is. It's not that he got his horse back, but that he had a son that would never rest until he had found the truth. If there is a seeking in your heart for the truth of God that is afraid of nothing, that will examine everything and will not rest until you have God's truth for your life, that will have an effect on your children. One of the best things I've ever heard in my life is Josh came to me about two weeks ago and looked at me and said, Dad, I want you to sit down and I want you to tell me why Christianity is right and all of these other religions are wrong. They believe in God the same as we do. They have prayer books the same as we do. They're just as sincere as we are. I want you to tell me the reasons why we're right and they're wrong. Guess what we're going to be doing all summer? I love it. You know why? Because it says... I'm not buying it on account of you. I'm not just going to take it into myself because you said it. I want to know it for me because I love the truth and I'm going to live by the truth. Best words I ever heard. Best words I ever heard. (sighs) Seek God for the truth. It will divide you. From other people who are very satisfied with the way they are living. You will pay a price because you have found truth in Jesus Christ. And you will not be as close to others as you sometimes would like to be, nor will you be as happy as you sometimes would like to be. But there is no real living without truth, there is no depth, there is no satisfaction in any kind of life, even a life of religious clichés, without knowing in your heart what the truth is. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for making the truth so strong that it will not dissolved before we get to it. Thank you for making it so distinct that it is not up for popular opinion. Thank you for making it so absolute that it doesn't matter how many people vote one way or believe one way. The truth is still the truth, is still the truth. And when we really love one another, we will tell each other the truth. Help us To have the courage to face the world as it is. To face ourselves as we are. And to face you as you are. There are people here who have been seeking a long time and have not found it. And they are ready to try Jesus Christ for themselves. Come into their heart as they pray right now that you would be in their heart and help them commit themselves as the rest of us commit ourselves to finding what is truth for our life and for everyone's life forever. We love you. We partake now of the supper you have given us in commemoration of the truth that you have died for us to set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would the ushers please come forward? As they come forward, let me explain to you all, if you've never taken communion here before. This is an open communion. Anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is welcome to partake. The ushers will pass to you the elements. Please hand them to your neighbors and then get the bread. As the tray comes, pass it to your neighbor and get the cup, and hold it, please, until everyone has the cup and the bread, and they will all take it as a family, all right? Oh, that's hard. You may have to crack this bread. If anybody bought uh, lobster shears...